0: Hello and welcome to Staying the Course, a podcast on navigating the challenges of lifelong learning. If you are new to the channel, do subscribe if you find this content helpful. Our guest for today is Dr. Jared Seo, an educator with more than 14 years of experience in the education sector. Hello, Jared, how are you? Hello, how about yourself, Mr. Ashrif? <laughs> Doing fine uh quite a nice day uh winding down towards the end of the week how about yourself <laughs> the, the the weather
1: is horrible here in Kuching. i mean stormy uh oh. an actual an actual tree actually fell on the road ah. today <laughs> so pretty cataclysmic
0: but but otherwise and still all right <laughs> great great yeah so thanks jared for being here Right. All right. So In this episode, I'll be speaking to Jared about his experience in pursuing undergraduate and postgraduate studies in the field of education. We are keen to understand how an education in education works and what are the prospects and opportunities for scholars in the field. Jared holds a PhD and an MED in educational management from University Pendidikan Sultan Idris, a Bachelor of Education in Teaching English as a Second Language or TESL from University Malaya. So, Jared, let's begin.
1: Okay, uh, would you like me to introduce myself,
0: Ashri? Yeah, actually, my first question is, tell us about yourself. All
1: right. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, first off, I'm a big fan of uh, Ashri's podcast. Thanks. And so, <laughs> so, I know the first part is always the tell about yourself part. Yeah. So so I would I would say uh, Asrif is like the, the Joe Rogan for lifelong learning.
0: No man. Uh, <laughs> perhaps uh, a very small a very small niche, but thank you so much nevertheless.
1: <laughs> without the cannabis and without the alcohol, yeah. but yeah. but still pretty santai. All right, so <laughs> so so a little bit about myself. Um, what can I say? Um, I'm from a small town. I would say a small town in Sarawak known as Cebu. Mm. Uh, and Cebu to Sarawakins are, are not small But uh, it felt like when I was younger It felt like we were unmoored from the rest of the world And, and I think for a lot of uh, Cebu people We just wanted to escape And, and, my, and, I, was, and I actually went to Kuching To mm. pick up engineering at first But I was a dropout I was a, an engineering dropout I, I I took up E and E electrical and electronics engineering at Inti College, and one semester shy of graduating with the diploma, I, I dropped out.
0: Oh, that's quite that advanced course. already
1: towards that diploma. Yeah. yeah, because because there was a new development. Um, there was uh, I was called for an interview for a uh, university of Malaya scholarship. I see. Yeah, yeah, because uh, re- really engineering um. It's not really my thing i mean i am my engineers both my brothers are oil and gas engineers and and you are an oil and gas engineer yourself <laughs> and I, and truly hats off to you guys because i couldn't handle the engineering maths and all that really not my thing um but i i love science i eventually uh, love science now in my 30s and heading towards my 40s um but a bit later in life, but I do appreciate science. Okay, so after inti, I went to University of Malaya, where I spent six years, uh, studying Tesla. That really was out my alley. I really liked, uh, studying learning Tesla, and I and I thought that you know anyone could any. I don't know if you remember I've, I'm sure you you'll probably remember uh, the, the days of indie music mm. you know the days of uh, Bittersweet and uh, Mianka Hussein and hujan and I see I, yeah. I, I was one of those kids who was on the LRT skinny jeans long hair mm. uh, emo hair and you know going to MCPA <laughs> going to all these places to catch gigs and not only catching gigs, but forming bands of my own. I had post-punk bands okay. and, I, and I had, um, and, I, and I organized gigs myself. So, mm-hmm. and the, the reason I'm telling this is because it, I think it was that version of Malaysia that taught me about, that informed some of my decisions about lifelong learning, which I will touch on later. Okay, so I was in KL for six years. Mm-hmm. Um, doing TESOL. And after graduating with an undergraduate degree in TESOL, I was posted to the jungle from the concrete jungle to a real jungle. Mm. So, um, in, in ministry of education lingo, I was posted to a P3 school. Mm. P uh, So P3 is a band, uh, allow me to clarify, uh, P1, the, the P schools refers to pedalaman schools. I see. So, so the higher the number, the deeper it is. Okay. Uh, and the, and the, high, um, the highest number was P3. It still is. Oh. And, okay. So try, try, try to imagine this. P1 is accessible by road. It's just a bit off road. Mm. Uh, and teachers get a hardship allowance from mm. P1. P2 um, is harder, it's accessible by boat and you go to a school that has no running water and no electricity, save for genset, as well as, you, know, you, you depend on water from the sky, okay. as well as the river. P3 is harder still. It means that um, almost all three modes of transportation were not accessible. Uh, Even uh, so, it's just one, mostly just both, you need to, yeah, you need to go in. So I remember uh, being there for six years. I was in the Ulu P3 school for six years. Uh, I remember the floods, uh, like around this time, uh, we will have floods. I remember living in a, a barrack, which was the lowest, the lowest quarters. And I was sleeping on the floor on the mattress. And I woke up and I woke up near the door, all right, because water had come into my room and carried me like Aladdin on my mattress to the door. I remember water sloshing about because um, boats were passing by. It was the school was by the river Mm. and I could feel the the whole house rocking. And that happens twice a year, every year. Mm. So I was there for six years. Uh, as a teacher teaching english teaching civics teaching uh, music mm-hmm. and then after that i was posted still in a place called slangau uh, in cebu but sounds like slangau but really it's slangau mm-hmm. there's an extremely small place and so i was posted to the office there i see one of this, yeah and as a uh English language officer mm. uh, among, among many other portfolio. And then after that, uh, I'm here at HQ in Kuching overseeing um, Form 6, actually. We're oh, seeing see. Form 6 for, uh, for the whole of Sarawak. I um, see. Yeah, so that's the trajectory. Mm. Um, while I was in the jungle, mm. I started uh, the master's program, um, yeah. the oopsie master's program. Mm. I was reluctant because it has nothing to do with Tesla. Yeah. Uh, as, did, as did my batchmates. Many of them wanted GM, MLA, wanted Maths, you know, mm. very specific ones. Mm. Um when it was it was an executive program, meaning um we were the first cohort in Sarawak that were invited to join this executive program meaning the lecturers from oopsie actually flew in it was really experimental yeah it was really experimental for oopsie and oopsie was the only one that did this Hmm. so so they rented a a place it was Hmm. basically uh, a room above a shop house where they conducted classes every week so i would i would go to these classes my saturdays whole saturdays and whole sundays Will be spent there before I took the boat back to the jungle.
0: Oh, so yeah. that's pretty cool actually. So, um, from Tanjong Malim, yes, they go to KL, they fly to Cebu town, yes, direct flight KL to Sibu, yeah, KL to Cebu again, yeah. and then they run the classes there every weekend, or is it like every fortnight or every month? How does it work? every saturday and sunday without fail they took turns though i see yeah which yeah. is which is an interesting illustration on the level of innovation you know if there's if there's a place where innovation in education could be tested and experimented as you've just um, uh, 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 told us it will come out of oopsie i would guess right oh, and and yeah because i think okay that is the center where ideas from the historical context all the way to what's next for education is being developed. So um, talk to us through, because I think that that is an interesting form of distance education or an, an interesting form of remote learning whereby the instructor goes to the student instead of the other way around. So... Talk to us about the beginning of that and then how it was on a weekly basis, you know, crossing the river and then coming back for classes and how long did it take you for you to complete your MED? And I, I believe once you go to your PhD, it was no longer classes, right? It's more on your research. Talk to us about that, that part of your life. <laughs> that,
1: that's true, Asri. Uh,
0: um,
1: all right, so when I was doing uh, the MED, um I would spend whole days, it's whole day Saturday until five. Um and almost whole day on a Sunday because at around 12 or one I will have to go to the jetty mm. to catch the boat for a two-hour uh boat ride full of poultry and people. It's it's so packed that half the boat will be. Would be in the river, and and the and the boatman, the captain, would usually be be, be having a tipple himself, and and we would all enjoy. It. I would have to drink myself on the boat, and <laughs> the boat would take two and a half hours to arrive. Well, anyway, um, so 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 that was part of the story. And in terms, I, I found it interesting that you pointed out how Oopsie, as always, uh, has innovated from. Being a marked up, I think the first marked ever, mm. uh, teachers training college ever, and before becoming institute, and then mm. thereafter, uh, university, and it was actually an experiment. They told us, I think they just started Oopsie Holdings at that time. I see. One of our le- one of our lecturers, we had some interesting lecturers, and um, the first cohort, there were just eleven of us actually. I see, I see. And our cohort comprised mostly of career or mid-management uh, school administrators. I that see. means people who have worked more than 15 years, like Penolong kanan or uh, headmasters um, and principals. We have, we have a Nazir, a school inspector. Mm. And one outlier, one person who works in a bank oh. who thought that yeah, yeah, she had nothing to do with uh, the field of education, but she just wanted in a master's. Mm. And from what I've heard from our lecturers, um, plenty of people from outside the field of education took up this master's. Mm. Uh, so some of our lecturers were career lawyers. So we had one module on education law, which was interesting because it's um, very focused on, it's mostly civil law. No. Oh, tort. So because uh you you'll be wondering why should teachers or those and em- school administrators be apprised of education law? You'll be asking yourself. And actually it's important that um teachers or school administrators know about this. Why? Because the number one one of the top um cases they are always tried is negligence. And they gave us all these case studies. Uh, all these case studies from the 70s, 80s, all through the 2000s.
0: And that's the best way to learn, right? Real stories. <laughs> real
1: stories, real case studies, um, real cases, someone like uh, like Ling versus or, or the government uh, of Malaysia versus Ling <laughs> and all this. And of course, the, the law lecturer was herself a lawyer and therefore she had a lot of stories to tell. One of which was walking into the courtroom and finding her former teacher on the stands oh uh, for bankrupt for bankruptcy. Oh dear. <laughs> which was which she used as a platform to segue into uh, teachers, huh? Don't get into that. Mm. Uh, okay. So I think I went off tangent. So why is it important to learn education law? Because of negligence. Mm. Because there were cases where, for instance, for Kamahiran Hidup, there was one case mm. where a, I think it was a female teacher in the 70s who oversaw 20 uh, students mm. on the field in the kerbun. And they were supposed to uh, fiddle with the, the gardening, the farming things. And one... When when she was seated under her umbrella, one of the student's head was um hit by a hole, a, a chancol. Mm. Yeah, the, the sharp end. Oh, my God. So, yeah, yeah. So, that was a case study that I remember very distinctly. And she was um hauled to court. I see.
0: <laughs>
1: and, and there was a more recent one, I think, in the 2000s, uh, where, which we studied as well, where I think a child ran around. I think a seven year old child, it was a class, ran around uh, as children do mm. with a pencil, and pencil was you know buried in one eye. In oh one my of it. God. Yes, children, yeah, and yeah. that and they found out the teacher was not in the class at the time.
0: Mm, I see, and I see.
1: and we and we learned things like in local parentis, you know, where. Th- teachers are supposed to be the second parents in school mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and stuff like that and we learned cases even from uh, uh, what holiday they called presidents presidents from uh, UK president cases mm. cases that had gone and of, there was one particular case which I remember um, where this case was important because it became refer- it was referred to by Toyota even they had a case. Okay, Uh, let let me just briefly tell you, Uh, it was a boarding school in the early 20th century or Mm -hmm. towards the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, there was a boarding school in the UK where a warden for 11 years, the warden sexually abused the boys there.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. they were ranging from 7 to I think 15, 16 years Mm -hmm. old. 11 years, the administrators heard of it but did nothing. Ah. So, so they were hauled to court, and the administrator, including the headmaster, just washed his hands of it.
0: Mm.
1: But the the judge at the time used the term in local parenthesis: "You are supposed to be the parent."
0: I see. I see. Of
1: all these children, whether or not you were there, you were responsible. You are accountable. Mm. And and of course, there were other Latin terms. Um. This was referred to in the Toyota case because I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the the heads tried to argue that it's not their fault mm. when uh, when I think some there was some re- recalls of defect cars or was it some tyre issue mm. and the and the board members or the president tried to try to get off the hook and mm. they referred to this. And say no. I see. I see. You are the boss and therefore you have to be responsible.
0: Something like mm, that. I see. And I thought that was
1: I thought, thought that was interesting. So right. um so the, the, the masters took two years.
0: Two years. Two years
1: of every, okay. every weekend, every weekend. And as you mentioned, um it was innovative in that they were daring. They told us they were operating at the loss, actually, that first cohort. Now they have Many cohorts now, one in Kuching, one in Cebu, I think one in Miri as well. But that first cohort, they were operating at a loss. Mm. Out of the 11, 8 graduated.
0: I see, I see, I see. So,
1: okay. they were operating at a loss mm. and um, it was their first time doing this and
0: And I saw through the glass
1: how the students were interacting with web conferencing. Both mm. universities were... I mean, there were students just looking at the, uh, white, the white screen mm. and the projection. Whereas we had actual flesh and blood tutors. Yeah. That, which was yeah. very different. Oopsie was the only one that did that.
0: Yeah. You know, and this was about 10 years ago, right? 2011, 2012? Yeah.
1: 2013, I graduated. 2011, it started, yes.
0: Right. So it was not for the lack of technology. They knew that the technology was already there for do some form of web conferencing I just mentioned. But voluntarily, deliberately, the program was designed for the tutors to fly themselves there and deal with the cohorts. And you, you would have like clusters of many cohorts in the future. So that pilot cohort, I thought that paved the way for something again, for innovation to take place. Um, somehow, it reminds me of how foreign universities open their branches here in Malaysia or in Southeast Asia or some parts of the okay. Middle East as well. Um, although that is a much larger scale, but I think the thinking is still bringing the expertise to where the demands potentially is. But I think there's an element of being inclusive here because your, you and your classmates were serving um, rural parts of the country. So you had limitations of mobility, but they bring themselves there. So I thought apart from attending to where the demand could be, so there's an element of being inclusive and more accessible to quality education for there. So what brought you to pursuing the PhD? hmm that is an
1: interesting question and it was curiosity that's number one curiosity and convenience okay so uh i've I've always been curious i i never thought that i would actually pursue a phd when i finished the masters at 2013 i was i was happy as a clam. i really was and i I did not do anything um almost throughout 2014 um but I started to become curious. There was no trigger. It just came. Mm. Uh, I was curious at um, the level of thinking at PhD level. People mm. have always, I think, mythologized. They've always mythologized. As well so as catastrophized. PhD, right? Permanent head damage. They always refer to PhDs as that. You, I'm, I'm sure you've, had, you've heard your share of that. And not far wrong. <laughs> not mm. far wrong. It can be very lonely, but um, it's partly convenient because um, once, as you know, once you've reached masters, you are like, hey, why not, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're like, why not, masters not too bad. Mm. Um, and it's just, plus the lecturers themselves, at least one, the particular lecturer who was in charge of oopsie Holdings, I think it was his mastermind, this whole... Uh, flying from the executive program was probably his mastermind. Mm. He was the one who said, ah, PhD. He basically demystified it. He was basically saying, it's not as hard as you think. Mm. I encourage you to do it. He pushed it whenever he could. He promoted it. I would. Uh, I still wouldn't say he was the biggest influence Um, because not many. Out of my cohort, I'm the only one right now who has finished, actually finished, I who see. has actually Started okay. because yeah and then uh, there were rumors of an executive program for PhD as well I see. at that time there were rumors we signed up for it there was no news for half a year and then it went away but now it's back oopsie it's doing it now mm. lecturers flying into Kuching and Cebu to tutor or to supervise I see uh, PhD mm. executive PhD um, candidates
0: I so, can relate so my I... read. Yeah, yeah. So I can relate to that because you, you know, a master's to begin with seems like something that is so so far. But once you've completed it, there is some level of skill that you've acquired reading journals, uh, attending to papers, and you know where you stand when it comes to it. So it's just taking the next step. So, and so you were saying at the point of um, starting your PhD, um, what was the research that you chose to dive into in within educational management right what was the field um
1: at first uh, i thought i wanted to continue what i had done for my masters which was transformational leadership but at the time but it was transformational leadership was really in vogue at that time it was trending because uh najib was the pm it was all about transformacy. i see, I see. <laughs> It was part of it, as well as in literature. Um, transformate, lots of my lecturers, okay, it's like this. A transformational leadership was really involved. And I wanted to continue with it. And I And I actually had a proposal. I went for a proposal defense where I found out that the panel of lecturers at UPSI at the time, I think there were like four or five lecturers who listened to my proposal. Mm-hmm. inform me their phd dissertations were on transformational leadership and therefore it is, it is outdated and I please see. change i see so, <laughs> so i went all the way up to uh if proposal defense before i had to change and and this change kept happening mm-hmm. and uh, i mean after the proposal i was asked to Change quite significant chunks of my proposal wow, okay. to instruction. Uh, they, they did not suggest it, but because I was in the field and this is where I, I feel that my experience on the field, in the field itself is important. Because mm. I am in the field, I am working at the time in um, the office. I, I've attended meetings at, in Putrajaya and I have, I'm cognizant of the latest trends in education and what the buzzwords are. Mm-hmm. And the buzzword at that time was instructional leadership. When I started to undertake it, like around 2014, 2015, yeah. Okay. The buzzword was instructional leadership and there was an educational blueprint out. Yeah. And the, the
0: thick blue book. That was 2016, 2025, I think, was that the? 2013, to 2025. 2013, yes. okay, okay. Yeah. The so 2013
1: to 2020. That document was was actually beautiful. Uh, uh, if you've read the language, it's beautiful. It's yeah. well, McKinsey yeah. came up with it. And and my PhD supervisor actually had his 15 minutes of fame. He said, I oh, want wow, my research was so, I see. I see. <laughs> so he was quite proud of that. So um, so that was what I did. I looked into instructional leadership um because and so, what's the difference between transformational leadership and mm. leadership? Very, very briefly, transformational is leadership is this heroic charismatic figure who comes to the school to save the school, mm. you know, like that. All these uh, all these teacher movies you see on the Hollywood teacher movies are ah, mm. go to the Bronx. I'm gonna save the school and turn it around. Granted, there are teachers like that and trans yeah. to transform. Essentially. Mm. And that is an instructional is different. An instructional leader knows the goings on in the classroom. Mm. And, and is focused more on the teacher, not himself or herself. I see. But as transformational is really um, there are parallels, of course. They tessellate, they overlap. Mm. There are some of the dimensions, some the domains they overlap. Mm. For instance, they both have vision. Uh, he or she has vision, is a visionary, he, he or she uh, gets down to, to the grassroots and speak to the teachers and, and all that, communicate. Instructional leadership is significant because it just goes into the classroom. It takes the teachers to task as to what they are doing for the students. The focus is the student. Mm. And instructional leaders that I know personally, actually check the students book, they do a sample. I know mm. of one, when I visited him, his table would always be full of piles of piles of exercise books, mm. which he would check at random. He himself would check and give marks. Mm. Even, like eh? even as a Pengatua? Even as a Pengatua, and he would, this is a rare breed, mm. he would work until 10 p.m. with his tie still on. Wow. <laughs> that kind of guy. Now he is, <laughs> he is a PPD, he's the chief. <laughs> Education Excellent. officer in a, in a district. Uh, I mean, I think it's well deserved, okay. but
0: that kind of person I've seen. So, so you know, you, you see, this, this, these are the domains that you would be drawn to once you have pursued a PhD because it is when you focus or narrow down to a really um, uh, 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 specific subject, right? And, and you've chosen uh, instructional leadership as yours. I, I, I work in, in instructional design. We design training programs. so But that is a very uh, uh, practitioner-based knowledge of that particular subject. But I'm sure you've read um, pages of literature on, on the subject. Now, my question is, how has it benefited you in your role today? The experience of doing the master's, the PhD, how has that benefited you in your current role?
1: I think you already know as, a, as, a, as someone who is doing PhD at Durham, right? mm. and they are transferable skills, and these transferable skills are very real. Uh, because when... As a PhD candidate, um, you would have to go through, as you mentioned earlier, reams and reams of journal. Mm. And you would have to, for instance, um, I remember being stuck in terms of methodology. Um, and I had to scan just reams and loads of abstract experts before going straight to the methodology part to learn mm. how to deal with things. So, one of the takeaways from this, one of the transferable skills is there is a lack of fear. There is a fearlessness in doing something new. Mm. So when I first came into the HQ, um, I I was given a portfolio to oversee private institutions. That means tuition, that means um, tuition centers. That means uh, what others? Uh, private schools, international mm. schools. Uh, those were all. Uh, under my, my purview. And just in less than a year, they transferred me to another unit to handle Form 6.
0: I see.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm a primary school teacher. I had never been to Form 6 myself. Mm. <laughs> and, and suddenly I have to govern. So there is a, but I took this in stride mm. and because I had been in worse situations, mm. i.e., I had been in a situation where. None of my hypotheses were testing significant. All right. And it was horrifying and terrifying. Mm. When, when you are, uh, because I was using SSPS, uh, mm. to, mine was quantitative. So uh, I was reading in literature, oh, this is supposed to be significant. This and that is supposed to be significant. It's, it sounds so easy for them, mm. you know. But when I tested my hypothesis, with using a statistical test, none of those came out significant. I was terrified. I was like, I'm going to fail this. I oh. imagine my viva where I would be blank. I'll be, uh, executed. <laughs> this line of the, the viva panel, <laughs> I thought I would. I think I had nightmares about that. But it turns out that I was using. I was just using the wrong methodology and all that. So that was one takeaway. One transferable skill was there was this fearlessness. You oh. you you asked me to do anything whole any portfolio I will I will go and read the literature I'm not afraid mm. of the, the word count not afraid of the word count I'm not afraid to do the legwork mm. and I'm not afraid to learn something new I'm not afraid to be humbled by um, all this information that I never been before I'm not afraid of uh, unfamiliar territory in terra uh, terra incognita and all that mm-hmm. so that's one major takeaway uh to and another one is of course um not be easily wowed by um not be easily wowed by titles ah, right? yeah yeah because in my line of work as in yours I, I i believe you have to deal with um people who who uh try to pass off certain information as facts mm. and suddenly you go really
0: <laughs> I ah. think
1: as as a, as a PhD you go really is that justified is that can that be verified? Can that be verified? And you fact check. Yeah. You fact check many times and and I was not like that when I was doing my, my master's in fact I started to become like that and the the longer I did my PhD. Mm. And that was another transferable skill you start to think in terms very very critically. Mm. Uh, Um, But still, I think a a key difference between part-time students like us Mm. and people who
0: are career students is as a
1: mature person, as a mature student, as a soft skill that you can only learn from the field, I, I, I think, or experience. So that's takeaway number two. Lah. So how it applies to um, my job. And of course the third and uh, the third one is it helps me to go to see beyond Mm. beyond um, my particular narrow field uh, your, is, is your wife
0: working for MOE as well my wife uh, no but, no my wife so she but works. she's involved in the education she's, she's writing and um, doing poetry so she's in that line la. in the creative arts yeah, yeah. The, the, the reason I'm
1: asking is because I think because I started off as a teacher mm. uh, just um, as a group. Mm. And teachers um, with despite all their commitment and all that, sometimes can only cannot see beyond the school, the ah. classroom. Okay. Mm. They will, many, many teachers do not read or read widely or read much. And therefore, this graduate program, Master's PhD, right, it allows me to, to just expand. Mm. To know that there's a whole world out there in terms of education because education is not simply okay Tesla I teach English everything's applied as you mentioned earlier the instructional uh, design right mm. things are applied they are they, they respect things which are applicable things which are applied they um, they are cowed or they are intimidated by framework theory mm. yeah uh, big words. Um, <laughs> Big word, research, lingo, jargon. Yeah. They do not like that. And I, and I respect that. Mm-hmm. I respect that they yeah. they are in the field, they are in the trenches. Yeah. Um, however, there are people such as uh, myself who would like really to go into that territory mm. to know where our training came from, the the, the primary source, mm-hmm. the... The first principles right and for instance um we were always we were trained to um uh, to allow students to master a skill for instance uh, the, the big four reading writing speaking listening right uh we, with your children i think you can see that we we we, we don't teach them something which is high tier yeah uh, we don't Throw the physics book at your children and ask them to master that. (laughs) It's incremental, right? Right. So we were always trained in the Maktab because I went to Maktab as well. In the Maktab, in the university, we were trained to do things incrementally. So it is after after, um, I read the literature, I knew it came from Mm -hmm. Vygotsky, the zone of proximal development. And funnily enough, Dr. Jordan Peterson mentioned that a lot. Uh, so, <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, knowing, going back to the basics and learning about especially uh, the psychology yeah. uh, in education is mm. useful not only in the classroom but outside the classroom as well. Mm. We learned about Eric Erickson who, who posited about and propounded about the, the levels of development. The levels of okay from age one to six, how 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 the children are, and then from seven to twelve how they are, the adolescent age and all that. It mm. um all mm. of this um not only allow you to at least have a little understanding of what goes on in the psyche of your students, but also your colleagues. Mm. and also teachers and also your friends in general, Mm. you can generalize. Yeah. Right.
0: right. So I think those those transferable skills, Mm -hmm. you can't learn it from a classroom. You can't go to a training uh, two days and then you go back. It needs the rigor, the intensity of of, of, of reading through the journals and as you said, reams of it and so forth. Now, you presented papers. Um, at uh, the, the research uh, symposium in, in Tokyo. There was a paper that you presented uh, in, uh, in the research organized by, by Oxford University. Talk to us about these experiences because I'm sure putting your ideas into representation as well as publication was a daunting task but over time, the thrill of it uh, was something that was exciting as well. So, how was that Jared? So um, let me start with Oxford yeah um,
1: so, so because I have presented domestically as well the, the there is a difference between presenting in Malaysia although although the title is international symposium etc yeah. et etc cetera, et cetera, yeah. of, of course and and they are in international presenters of course. Of course. but the audience is different um and when when I went over to Oxford. They were, of course, Americans. They were mostly Americans. And there were uh, Oxford uh, professors themselves. And when I shared about my experience in the jungle, the ulu, the pedalaman, mm. their jaws dropped. They just, could, they just could not wrap their heads around similar experience. Mm. They had their own experience, to be fair. They had their own experience. Mm. But when I talk about crocodile-infested waters, when I talk about my, my, my mattress floating like Aladdin's carpet to the, to the door on the way to the river, when I talk about students um, when I talk about students marrying at the age of 14, I can say 80% of my primary six class were married at the age of around 14, 15. Mm. And early marriage and when I was telling them about my student who did not even attend preschool and they immediately, because of his age, put him in primary four who didn't even know that the multiple choice question paper, the answer paper, he was supposed to shade it. I thought he was just, I thought he was just being naughty and I scolded him for it and he cried in the corner and I felt sorry about it. And I realized that he didn't know the conventions of answering a paper Mm -hmm. all right so when i went to Oxford and i presented all this they were they were very supportive um they there was this lady from columbia university who told me that i should i should send my paper to this and that journal she said this would be excellent in this journal another one from austria who recommended um another journal to me from Austria. She said, uh, love hearing about this. Please keep in touch. And another lady from Slovakia who wanted then and then to buy me a book from Amazon. Oh. She thought they would help me. So they were all very helpful. They were lovely. We did it at Green Templeton College, which was beautiful. Good food and all that. And okay. So presentation at Oxford was nice. Um, in that, they are very, they were very appreciative. They were very appreciative, very respectful because we had one of the, one of the organizers was a, an eminent professor, Professor Pring, who is almost 80 years old. He's still wow. a professor, There is a fellow there. Mm. And he was so, so respectful, so mm. respectful to our ideas and mm. our experiences. Mm. So that was um, Oxford. And when I went to Tokyo, mm. Tokyo was interesting because uh, when I presented my paper, um, there were people who were interested in what I was saying because, specifically because it was so different from their experiences as well. And because many of them were writing books and all that. And and I thought very, very supported in Tokyo. What was more important was my takeaway from Tokyo, which was I was first introduced to the concept of society 5.0. Never. So they, yeah, there you go. Uh, so so I I prior to that, I did not hear of that as, as well, because we are very familiar with IR 4.0, right? <laughs> we are very familiar with IR 4.0. Yeah. It, has, it has been spoken of to death. Mm. <laughs> and but to hear about that in 2018, at the end of mm. 2018 about Society 5.0, I was gobsmacked. Mm. Then they started talking to us about Society 5.0 where mm. they talk about robotics and exoskeletons helping old people in daily life. And it has, it has been promoted by the government of Tokyo mm. as something that is happening now. Mm-hmm. Robotics and AI and VR way before Metaverse, way, way before, before metaverse. everything.
0: <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Tokyo is doing that. Tokyo it's... is doing that. And and I was like, ah, my mind was blown. And and there mm. was, I think, an important reason for us to travel to these places and attend mm. conferences. Mm. Because you get exposed to all these things which you otherwise wouldn't have. Mm. And I certainly had my mind blown on, on those two uh, mm. occasions. Nah.
0: Right. yeah that was my experience it's interesting that you uh mentioned i you know i think it's an embodiment of the sense of community that exists uh in the world of academia although um you know what you share on twitter <laughs> with regards to <laughs> academia sometimes is not really a reflection of what's going on out there right? so until you go out there and grad and in green templeton in Tokyo, interact, speak, converse with them, then only get the feel of it. So thank you for sharing that experience, Jared. I think that would that would definitely inspire others to really reach out. Now, my second last question. You have been in this field almost 15 years, right? Yes. Um, what's the future looking like uh in the field of um an in education in, in education? Um post-pandemic instructions, uh, teaching and learning, moving online, new technologies um, uh, opening up for for research. And as as you just mentioned before, society changing as well. How how is the future looking like in in education?
1: I think as with in any catastrophe or any cataclysmic event, innovations happen mm. out of necessity. So, um, before the pandemic, I would meet encounter teachers who were very reluctant, even then, to do anything on the laptop, they refused to learn Excel spreadsheet. Mm. Uh, they, would, they would post things on mahjong paper and marker because they thought I've been doing this for 30 years, young man. You know, I don't need a computer. It doesn't need me. (laughs) They were not IT savvy and they choose not to be because, well, their their style still works. Admittedly, they still perform. Mm -hmm. They still perform very well. Mm. And with this pandemic, there is no longer any excuse not to be IT savvy. And you see all these teachers, um, they embrace the technology, the very same technology they shirked from previously. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, they, they, they sounded like Ladites when they showed technology, but now that they can't use mahjong paper long distance anymore,
0: yeah. they
1: had no choice. And, and I am impressed. I'm impressed by many of these teachers who, because out of their sense of commitment, out of their sense of the job, and the love for their students, they, they took to technology like that to water and they learn, I mean, even things that I don't think that I use often, the whole Google suite They can explain to you now, <laughs> some schools, some schools, yeah, they were very proactive. I think um, recently I attended another Oxford uh, conference this time online oh. and and I heard uh, a presentation by an Indonesian, it's a little segue, but it's related. Uh, so the Indonesian professor, told me about the teachers in their, uh, their particular area in Indonesia um, using or asking their local governments for help. Very often they have trouble with reception and all that as we do, as the rest of the world do. Yeah. And I was thinking, in Sarawak at least, I don't hear a lot of complaints. Mm. Um, the the headmasters and the principals spearhead they would pro, They were proactively initiating things no government before there was a government mandate mm-hmm. uh oh let's use this and that uh, they already did it they, they were whole schools that used just google google suite google docs google everything and they learned uh, there was a coordinator they appointed a coordinator. they had a committee to learn uh amongst themselves even before the school uh went online or whatever they learned among themselves. And what I see uh before the difference between before and after the pandemic is stuck in terms of innovation and the reception towards um for, for instance what, what we are doing now
0: yeah teleconferencing. Uh I was
1: like, oh, that is not personal. I will never engage in that. Well, mm-hmm. well Mulut masina. Now <laughs> here, here, here we are doing yeah. this. And yeah. and we are all embracing it. And they are and I even know in Kuching there was this uh new graduate graduate. A new graduate who was not from education but goes into education technology. Yeah, ed-tech. And, and I see millennials, like fresh grads, uh, going into ad tech. Mm. And, and, and that is another thing. Teachers as well um, are seeing a world beyond their classrooms, thanks to um, being online all the time.
0: Yeah,
1: I, yeah thanks to being online all the time, challenging and all that, mm. but it and and also, I think this pandemic gives people a sense of urgency. Yeah. A, sense, a sense of, oh, you know, any, anybody could die at any moment. Yeah. Uh, a sense of nihilism and that closeness of death. Existential angst. Like, and teachers too. Uh, some, many of them have asked me uh, about continuing education. Uh, and anyway, the MOE is very... Um, Encouraging anyway. You know that the MOE has, has the Hadiah latihan Peskutuan?
0: Yeah. Heard of it. Yeah. Some friends yes. took
1: it. Yep, yep. Yeah. So it's it's very competitive. It's like I traveling know. but only mm-hmm. for teachers. Mm-hmm. So it has always been very encouraging. It has no age limit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And anybody who wants to pursue Masters and PhD fully funded, mm. you know, you can go go ahead and compete for it. I mean, the Ministry has always been very encouraging but I think after the, now we're still in the pandemic
0: mm.
1: you see like an uptick are more and more people asking me about um, or asking me for tips I mean I've never I've never competed or won the HLP but mm. I've helped several friends to actually get HLP because mm. what is the interview but a mini Viva actually Right? Yeah. They're, asking the same, they're asking the same thing as what is your research question? What are your objectives? What's your hypothesis? Your methodology, explain this and that. Mm. Um, it's basically a mini viva So I'm just teaching them based on my experience with ViVa. Mm. And some, some of them actually got it and now undergoing mm. uh full full-time PhD. I see. Um, so there's an uptick in interest. Mm-hmm. All these friends who who were like ah, degree to group lah start <laughs> night punk pun <art>, yeah. <laughs> You don't get promoted, but suddenly they are interested. I think the pandemic, that existential angst, hmm. it just reminds them how short life is. Suddenly right, change. right,
0: right. So, you know, the the urgency that it creates... It's the biggest experiments in working from home in the world. And I think in in a way, it's yes. also teaching from home or learning from home, right? So I really appreciate those insights uh, from the ground. Jared, yeah, you're really grounded in terms of where your insights come from. So before I go to my last question, I'd just like to recap those three points that you shared earlier in terms of those transferable skills that you have uh, gathered from your PhD experience. Number one, the fearlessness and the agility that you have built. In terms of trying something new, taking up an, an, uh, an assignment that's not familiar to you, stepping out of the comfort zone, right? Um, number two, questioning everything, not just accepting everything at, 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 at our face value. And number three is to see beyond what you are confined to, towards the vastness of the world, right? So I think um, great sharing, Jared. My last question for those who are considering uh, an education in education, be it in bachelor's level, even at diploma level, bachelor's level, MED, going into a PhD in education or an EDD, um, what is your advice?
1: My, my advice is if you are interested in teaching and learning, go for it. Uh, if you are teaching, uh, if you are very interested in Education in terms of policy, public policy. Mm. Um, go for it. If for instance, if you are already politically active, or you are a government servant, or you are in the private sector, you're interested in. Perhaps you have children, and you are exposed to, uh, or you are concerned
0: mm. about
1: education in Malaysia. Mm. Go for it. Go for a degree or a, a master or a PhD on education because there's so many strands
0: mm. in
1: terms of education in terms of academy, right? In, in academia. There are so many strands. Um one of which is public policy. If you're in a think tank, if you're in a think tank and you you would like to uh, work in the intersection between education and tech, education and uh, politics, go for it. Um who else? Even people who are uh, Simply interested beyond teaching and learning, it need not just be about teaching and learning it is about uh, how we educate right generations right generations um just go for it um, what other ab- advice if you are from a different field hmm. i i think I think you you know too many people oil and gas engineering medicine hmm. uh, and suddenly you you have that um you have that interest that budding interest in education in the country domestically internationally the philosophy of education mm. go for it go for it because uh that's education is the one area unlike coding where you can go for boot camps <laughs> where you really have to where you really have to have a structure mm-hmm. in learning mm. Like, so go for a master's in education. It's not long. It's two years mm. in Malaysia or yeah. in elsewhere in, in the UK. 10 months. Mm. Go for that.
0: Get immersed in that. And you'll come out changed. Mm. Yeah. So thank you, Jared, for those uh, sharing. So even though if you're in a different field, there's an inkling of interest in the field of education. There's no stopping you from pursuing that goal. So... Jared, it has been a fantastic one hour of conversation. I greatly appreciate your time. I wish you all the best in educating the future generations of the world. You're in charge of form six. I heard that's the most difficult exam. Among all the exams out there. Thank you so much, Jared. All the best.
1: Thank you. The honor and the privilege is mine. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. I've always been a fan and all the best. And, uh, to to your podcast and to your future endeavors, Asri. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much.